While the kids are being dismissed, go through a couple of housekeeping announcements. I like to tell on myself, it just makes me a little bit more human. I was using the restroom this morning in the lobby, off the lobby, to clarify terms. To clarify terms, I was, did not use the restroom in the lobby. I used the restroom that's off the lobby. And while I'm sitting there and I'm looking straight ahead, and it's, you know, funny how the subconscious things work. I'm used to seeing, here's what happens this month at Timber Creek. But right in front of my eyes, it says, Ladies Bunko. And for a brief moment, I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow, Timber Creek does Ladies Bunko too. Why have we never work to cross-pollinate on a ladies' bunco night, and then I realized that it was the What's Happening at HFF This Month flyer that I created yesterday that was set over top of the Timber Creek flyer, and so whoever got it into the men's restroom in front of there, kudos to you, because even I didn't know what to expect, and I created the flyer, and so I'll tell on myself to say that it is okay to laugh. It is okay in the kingdom of God to rejoice. It is okay to be at peace. It is okay to admit sometimes we were wrong. For me, a lot of times I'm wrong. And so it's okay to do that. It's okay to, to walk in those types of places and realize that you can still be a full Bible believer. Today, I want to define terms because I got myself in trouble on the internet this week because I did not define terms. Funny how we forget sometimes that Jesus didn't come up and say one plus one equals two in every conversation because he wanted people to think. He wanted people to learn. He wanted the power of his spirit and God's spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to be able to impact and change and live. You see, Genesis to Revelation, the Torah, the prophets, the gospels, they're all about finding a way to live in harmony with what God has asked for us to do. Sometimes we get out of kilter, we get out of balance, sometimes we read things a certain way, sometimes we read things a certain way for a long period of time, and we apply them in a way that we want to because of our culture or because of our shortcomings or because of our understanding. But everything that God has ever done is still living. It was still living so that it could still be a tool in the hands of the Lord to draw us back. I want to define terms today. Because I think it's utterly important anytime you come together as a community to understand what the concept is. And because I've got a couple of weeks while Brent is off in Israel again, I think it's important to define terms. Messianic. Let's define this term. The reason why we need to define the term messianic is because dependent upon who you speak to, the term messianic means different things. Some people, it's ultimately aligned with Judaism. And they're like, Judaism, but like, is there Jesus in the Judaism? Or, and there's that conversation. Some people, that is a whole nother, like, regathering of Gentiles and, and, and Israel, and, and they've got various different concepts that are there. There's a reason why I chose the topic title I chose this week. And this is actually the old title um, because God wanted me to change it in the middle of the week. And I didn't change it on here, but it is online. 
messianic prophecies in the gospel of Ezekiel. Say, oh man, this guy's lost his mind. Everything is about the gospel and, and it's, everything in the Bible is about God. About God. Everything is about making us into the image that God has created us to be because God is not a created being, we are. And so as his creation, whether you're a tree or you're a human or you're a really pretty squirrel that's running across my fence that I'm shooting with a 22, you are God's creation created to be in the image of God. God's perfect image on this world was Jesus. Yeshua, Yehoshua, whatever pronunciation you want. English translation says Jesus, and so I'm just going to stick one-on-one with this. Messianic prophecies, well, that's an interesting terminology. That means a lot of different things. And honestly, I did not want to touch this topic, but I felt, and I'm still writing pages, which is why this is at least a two-week series. Messianic is relating to the Messiah. Relating to the Messiah. I just want to make sure to define even further so that you all understand where I stand. There are many Messiah Christ-like figures who have walked in the history of this world. Some of them have fulfilled exactly what the Lord wanted for good. And they're listed in the scripture as being good or there was good traits about them. And some, they did exactly what the Lord wanted them to do. They shadowed the Antichrist, not the Christ, not the Messiah, the Antichrist system. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was perfect. And I know we can debate all the way around but this is a pillar of this church and a pillar of of my faith you don't have to leave this church if you disagree with me because we're not that shallow but i will tell you jesus is god and i will never argue i will never debate i will never allow myself to put myself in a position to debate god of which i am not ever The creation doesn't get to define the creator. The creator defines the creation. So when we talk about messianic prophecies, when we throw that terminology around, whether it would be with our Jewish brothers and sisters, or it would be with our brothers and sisters in Christianity, or it would be with somebody who has no current faith or practicing or profession of faith, let me make it abundantly clear. It is not a messianic prophecy. You cannot use that terminology unless it's about Jesus. We can call it a Hebrew roots prophecy. We can call it a Christian roots prophecy. We can call it a Christian Zionist. There's so many different terminologies we can use. But if the term messianic is being used and Jesus isn't at the center of it, you are off base. Turn around, send up a signal. Anybody who's watched the show manifest, you've missed your calling, get back in line. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the Sabbath day. I thank you for the opportunity to find peace, to find rest, to find hope in your word. 
Father, I thank you for all the things you've done to keep your word relevant to us when so many other books have, have been destroyed and, and tales have not been told, Lord, you have always come through for your name's sake. Lord, today we come here to put our hearts, our minds, our focus on you and you alone. And as we study your word, we ask that you would impart wisdom and discernment and knowledge upon your people through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would not read your word the same way we have done before, but that we would see it as living. We would expect you to be able to speak and to guide and to mold. God, I am truly humbled that you would allow me to serve this community. Continue to mold and make us into a culture, into an image, into a place where the testimony is Yeshua is in that place. For it's in the name of Yeshua we come before you. Amen and amen. Over the last month or so, we've gone through three kind of interesting elements. They're not really traditionally taught in a Jesus Sabbath gathering with the Hebrew undertone. See what I did there? I, I didn't call it a Messianic church. Got to be careful. Can't undo my own definitions, defining terms. Otherwise, social media will come for me again. One is the confession of faith. This is often overlooked in some of our Hebrew undertones of Christianity. There's two main confessions of faith. This is important. One, there is the confession of faith in Jesus the Messiah. If that confession of faith does not happen, any salvation you believe that you have is a works-based salvation which basically means your identity is in yourself and what you can do for yourself. It is not in what God can do for you. Second is the confession of the need for repentance, a need for a savior. Israel throughout the history of the Bible needed a savior, and when they thought they didn't is when they needed a savior the most. The reasons why people are falling away from their faith there's four main reasons and how we can live in a culture and how we can be a body, a family that operates differently. That when things get tough, when we have disagreements, that we can actually do life with each other. And you know, if we can figure that out, then we actually can keep a good chunk of the commandments. Because it's easy to say, well, I once loved that person, but things just went awry. Well, and when it starts with your friends, and then it goes to your spouse, and then it goes to your children, and then it goes to somebody else, and then ultimately it goes to your God. Well, I once loved Jesus, but when Jesus didn't show up and do something that I needed him to do in my life, then Jesus no longer was Jesus, and so I needed to find something else. Once again, most of those are works-based, what-have-you-done-for-me-lately theologies, ideologies and practices. And then the 10 steps of how to walk in spiritual maturity. Guys, it's not enough to just know about God. We have to actually live God. And for anybody who is second generation, roots-based Christians, see again what I did with the terminology? You understand that you grew up in an environment 
where for the most part, we went from having one set of pastor's kids in a community to almost everybody became pastor's kids. Because see, the fact that we're allowed to be in a room this big with air conditioning, with all these interesting lights, and we can bring in some of those good old uh, stained glass-esque, and we've got kids who know how to run lighting programs and 4K and 10K and all those things. I was around where we were in a farmhouse in Tennessee, and there was like 10 of us sitting there. We didn't have those. We had a Bible, we had some friends, and we had Mark Smith playing worship. That's what we had. And if we had more than that, we were blessed. And what happens is everybody immediately became pastor's kids because we're trying to figure out how to walk out the entirety of the Bible. We're trying to figure out how to parent the entirety of the Bible. And there's things that are taught and things that are said and all these types of things. And now here we are in 2023, 2023, and we have places like this. And we're not the only one. Like that's unheard of in my mind. I never thought that that would be there. But we're walking through all of these seasons, all of these times, all of these bullet points from the scripture so that you can become the best leader God wants you to do. Yes, the Craig Rochelle line with a man bun. The best leader. Why? Because you are the leaders of your homes. You are the leaders in the community. You are the leaders in your workplace. You, some of you are the leaders of your younger siblings. You let us know all the time, Hannah. This is how we should grow to exhibit the fruit as spoken of in Galatians in our life. Why is it important that we should do that? So that people can tell what type of leadership training we have. If you don't exhibit the fruit that is mentioned of the Holy Spirit, can you truly be a leader, an apprentice of the Holy Spirit? There's more than one spirit out there, guys. But the Holy Spirit says you should produce this fruit in leadership. You should see that in your marriages. You should see that in your communities. You should see that in your workplaces. You should see that everywhere. This is where we should be striving to go. The goal is not to be a teacher of the roots-based faith who has a pulpit, who has a ministry and a YouTube channel. No, the goal is to be the best servant of Jesus we can be in our homes, in our marriages, with our friends, every place else. If God allows you to have those influences or he gives you those callings, it's only by his calling you have those things. It's not the playbook by which we do what we're supposed to do. I've watched that playbook exist for a long time. The Holy Spirit is a constant, non-chaotic presence meant to empower us to live a life that proves God is in us. Don't tell me how much you know about God. Show me how much you are with God through how you walk, through how you talk, what you do. Your faith comes by believing that Jesus is your salvation. But then if your walk tells me that Elon Musk is your salvation, then I got questions. If your faith 
tells me that Jesus from your lips is your salvation and your walk tells me that you are your salvation, we got problems. If your faith tells me that Jesus is your salvation and then your walk tells me that you are a cult copy of me, we have problems. Because we're supposed to be the image bearers of God on this earth. Of the 27 kings of Israel, that includes Judah and the other tribes, 19 are listed as being evil in the book of First and Second Kings. This also includes a passage in Second Chronicles. So as a church, as we try to create a culture to teach you about God, to teach you how to understand God, and then encourage and empower you to get with God, you don't need me to get in your relationship with God. As we encourage you to do that, one thing we need to understand is if we're trying to equip you to be leaders, and the Bible is true, which I believe the Bible is true, 70% of the kings of Israel were listed as evil. I believe that if you are in Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. And the reason why I believe that is because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. Which means you are part of the commonwealth of Israel. And if you're a part of the commonwealth of Israel, we have to look at the history of Israel, which tells us 27 kings of Israel and 19 of them are listed as evil. That's not a great percentage. We're not talking about a 50-50. We're not talking about a 50. 50-50 here. That's a staggering percentage, plus or take one or the other. If we apply the kingship position as an office to your homes, to your workplaces, to your churches, and to the statistics that would stay the same today, 21st century apprentices of Jesus, what type of leader would you be listed as in the scripture? This is something I've had to ask myself spent a lot of time with the Lord over the last six to seven months. You see, the rumors are true. I sin. See, the rumors are true. I haven't always been a good leader. See, the rumors are true. I sinned yesterday, and I fell short. The rumors are true. I've tried to impart my own wisdom and my own goals into the Word of God. The rumors are true. I need a Savior. The rumors are true. I need to die daily because we're all in the same boat. I am no better than any one of you. We are all called by the same scriptures, the same calling. This should be a wake-up to pastors, elders, overseers, husbands, wives. The history of the kings and the leadership of Israel we don't talk about that much. We get involved with Obama and Trump and Reagan and Clinton and Biden and Harris and DeSantis. And well, let's look at our history. Let's look at our heritage and see if we're destined to do exactly what the scripture says, which is create the same cyclical pattern or break the cyclical pattern. See, the book of Ezekiel it's often been used in roots-based theologies as a book 
to potentially cause us to pay attention to world events for potential judgments. It's not exclusive to that, but that's more the dominant element of how Ezekiel has been used. More recently, there's a, a group of teachers who are using the text of Ezekiel to talk about the temples, the house of the Lord. Is this a future physical brick and stone, or now are we looking at exclusive flesh and bone temples of the Lord? Guys, I don't have the answer to those, and I'm definitely not a prophet. But I can tell you this. The gospel of Ezekiel is something for each and every one of us to look inwardly for where we go to church, how we lead our homes, how we lead our friends and our relationships, how we interact in the supermarket, how we interact. I mean, you're like, come on, what, what is Ezekiel going to teach me about picking out organic bananas at Walmart? You'll see. You'll see. See, during the time of Ezekiel, there was a concept about how God operated. And that was that the holy presence of the Lord, the kavod of God, would manifest itself in the temple, the holy of holies. And there was a protocol. If you've been in the roots-based movement for any time, you know there's a protocol. You learn the protocol. We go through the Torah cycle. We talk about the protocol, all those types of things. And while there's nothing wrong with that, to this whole series, I'm going to try to take an overview on the gospel of Ezekiel and give you something you can actually do with it today. If God establishes another brick and stone temple in Jerusalem, if that's his will, if that's what happens, praise God. But until that happens, even if I know what ephod I'm supposed to bring, even if I know exactly what the cubics are, even if I know exactly how to slaughter a turtle dove in the land, and this, there's not much I can do with the physical, literal text. So do I gloss over and make it null and void? Of course not. But you do what Jesus did, which is find the principles and the parables in the text and how you can apply it today to your life. The prophet Ezekiel. God's divine glory, the kavod, in the book of Ezekiel starts out by leaving out of the holy of holies and meeting this guy named Ezekiel outside of the temple. The divine glory of Yahweh, Adonai, Lord, God, Jehovah. I've heard all the different pronunciations. I think he, I think he understands all of them. I don't, I don't think he's up there saying, no, you got the E wrong. It was Jesus, you just missed. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he's minoring in those things. I think he's up there saying, thank you for at least attempting to come to me. There's so many who don't want anything to do with me. Thank you for trying today to come with me. The divine glory leaves. Israel's idolatry, their violence, their wickedness, which is just really the human heart. If you spend any time in the Torah, you realize that the reason why God normally has to step into humanity is not because God screwed something up. It's because our heart is wicked. It's inherently wicked. And we like to do stupid stuff. And God has to come in and say, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for what you did, like, come on, guys. All I asked you to do is rinse your dish, dishes and put it in the sink, and you can't even do that. 
No, we're well past that. We're well past just being respectful. We're well past just loving. We're well past walking in graciousness. The human heart throughout the Torah, throughout the scripture, is wicked. But the idolatry, the violence of the human hearts have once gotten to a place where God could no longer sit on the sidelines. See, any time in chaos in the scripture, God is the only one who can restore order. Now, sometimes he'll use man to do that. Sometimes he'll call a Moses or sometimes he'll call a Deborah. God uses women too. God will call and God will use, or sometimes God, by the absolute power of his, his spirit, his calling, everything, will speak into and make those things happen. But chaos can't be restored to order unless it's God. God is order. Everything of the wickedness of the heart creates the chaos. Yet the majority of the chapters of the book of Ezekiel are filled with what many have called doom and gloom, warnings, decrees, coming judgments, I've listened to many different Ezekiel teachers over the years talk about when you see about the idolatry of Israel, this is just like when America is in idolatry and now we're in Babylon. And, you know, Babylon was a real place. And I need to make sure we understand that. Babylon was a real place. They were a real set of people. They were a real government. They were a real structure. And yes, they were an antichrist-like culture because Jesus wasn't the center. Yahweh wasn't the center. The Constitution, the Torah did not provide the boundaries of the law, and they did what was right in the human heart. And so, again, the precepts of Babylon can exist in other cultures, but Babylon was an existing place. It was a real place. We're not talking about DC comics, superheroes. We're not talking about Mario Land. We're talking about real place. And there are too many prophecies in this book for me to get through today, and I probably won't go through all of them tomorrow because, or next week, because right now I believe that there's an overarching thing the Lord wants us to do. And so this week, I encourage you to go back in your Bibles, in your private time, whether you have the Bible app, you have a physical Bible, whether you listen to podcasts or whatever. Um, personally, if you can find James Earl Jones reading the Bible, that's what you need to get because it doesn't get any holier than that. That man's voice is like butter. But go back and listen to the text. Hear, hear the words of the Lord. Meditate on them. Spend time with the Lord. See if there's other nuggets he wants that are relevant for your life today. Because as this church grows to be more than 35 people, each person is at a different spot of the journey, and God is still at that very spot with you in this journey. Why? Because God isn't dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside, roaring like a lion. The newsboys told me so. Read the book this week, and let the Lord reveal those things to you. The Word of God, when you listen and you read through it and you pray through it and you allow the Holy Spirit to do something with you, it speaks to your bones. It speaks to your fibers of who you are and the tenants. And oh, wait, there's also a part of Ezekiel where it talks about those things too. You know, where dry bones become alive. 
If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up into Ezekiel chapter 17. Today, I'm going to focus in on, on two prophecies and laying out the groundwork again for next week where we're going to go through more of this. And again, I'm not going to spend the time. One of the things about this church is, is kids are allowed to be kids. And you might be a 65-year-old kid or you might be Izzy down here who's like five, six months. Kids are allowed to be kids. And so today the goal is not to beat you over the head with every nuance that's there. I understand this isn't going to be all scholarly. It's not going to have every single detail that's there. Guess what? My job as a shepherd is not to make you into my follower. It is to encourage you with something that the Holy Spirit would impact your life so you will go back and read yourself. Husbands and wives, you will do it together. You'll spend time in prayer on the word, meditation. You'll do it with your children. I believe the Lord will use your children to speak to you. Why? Because sometimes they don't have the same baggage. But Ezekiel 17, the eagle in the tree. Oh, yeah. There's some real, real America right there, eagle in the tree. It's not about America at all. See, Ezekiel 17 uses the imagery of grafting and pruning. We talked about this a little bit last week because a lot of times when we talk about pruning, it's like, oh, the Lord's pruning me. And we, we almost imply that this is a negative thing that's happening. The truth is, is if the Lord is pruning you, it is not only for the establishment of you in a healthy root of another tree, but whoever else he pruned off, whatever else that plant is, the goal is not death, it's actually growth. And so if your relationship is pruned, if your relationship with God is pruned, if any of those things are happening, if you find yourself in a place where you're like, man, I'm being pruned. Thank you, God. Because he could have left you to die on your own. Instead, what he chose to do is to graft you off, to prune you off and put you in a place he knew you needed and that they needed you so that you could grow and you could thrive. So he's using the allegories of pruning and grafting, which we, we know if you've been in the roots-based movement for any period of time, the whole grafting process. Luke and I were texting back and forth a week or so ago talking about this because we've both been in, in the roots base of Christianity for a long time and how, how sometimes it's taught a certain way, but then there's other ways that are there and just dialoguing about the various different potential concepts that are there with pruning and grafting. But it's an allegory of Nebuchadnezzar taking the ruler from Jerusalem and the house of Judah and trying to influence them through their allies. And then towards the end of chapter 17, God promises he will plant. He will plant. When God does something, he doesn't screw up. I just want to make sure that's widely understood. We've got some people who've transplanted into Oklahoma, and when we transplant into Oklahoma, sometimes we try to become a green thumb. We're doing our best. We have taken on like 30 new children. They're all plants. Some of them have already died, but there is no plant protective services that I have found in the state of Oklahoma. So we're good. We're learning baptism by fire. But when you prune a plant, when you cut a tree, it is possible if you don't know what you're doing, you could provide death to the plant. One day, I thought I was being a good husband. I go over, fill up the water. I pour it into the plant. Apparently, ice water is not good for roots of plants. 
And so my wife goes, you're going to kill the roots. <laughs> Why? Because I didn't know what I was doing. Now, here's the thing. God always knows what he's doing. So when God's watering, when God's bringing light, when God's bringing fertilizer, when God's pruning, it is perfection, even if we don't maybe understand it. When we get out in front of God or we're too far behind God because we know God's spoken to us, sometimes we interject ourselves into whatever's there. And when we interject ourselves, we could prune something and kill it. It is possible. It is possible. If I am a husband... Well, I like audience participation, and my wife, uh, my wife correcting me is, uh, I wasn't, I didn't give a list of rules that were there, so thank you, dear, I love you too. Completely, uh, where, wherever I was going, God did not want me to go, because I don't remember a blessed thing, trolling's never happened in my life. I am speechless. You have witnessed a miracle today, praise God. When we're in a situation in our life, I'll give you an example of mine. When I first got married and we first started walking a roots-based lifestyle, we were a little bit more on the fringy side of stable roots. Um, but at that point in time, I was trying to get my house in order. You know, that's a, that's a common phrase, get your house in order. Um, we were in Tennessee and... Uh, we're in this whole concept of, well, the male is the leader of the house, and, and I still believe that's the case. Um, but there was this Bill Gothard-esque idea, ideology of how that's supposed to look. Now, again, I never went to a seminar. I was never, I've never read the book. Here I am as a guy who comes from a home of parents who were divorced, and all of a sudden, I think I know what this means in the Bible and how I'm going to walk it out. And... As I pruned my marriage, because, you know, part of the sin of the garden was Adam didn't, didn't till the garden. He didn't do his job. Yeah, I almost killed the garden of my marriage because I didn't do it right. I thought I knew what I was doing. And so we take these concepts of the scripture and you have to balance it out with the understanding that when you interject yourself, not the Lord there, you could graft and prune a plant to death both yourself and somebody else. Husbands, take note of this. If you are trying to prune your house without allowing the Lord to prune you, you are going to end up in some prophecies on your face, repentant or rebellious against the Lord. That's where it's going to be. Because if the Lord is not working through the husband and the wife and you don't have that active relationship and you're trying to adjust and manipulate and you're going to fail. You're going to prune the wrong branch and it's going to cause death to a portion of the tree. You're going to put ice water where you're not supposed to put ice water. Praise God those roots were solid because that plant didn't die. But when God tells them in Ezekiel 17 that he will plant a twig atop a mountain, which will grow and provide shelter for all peoples and lands. 
I can promise you when it says that God's going to do something, he's going to do it. He's going to see it to fruition, and it's going to be successful because God doesn't fail. Go ahead, write that down. God doesn't fail. I might fail. God doesn't fail. It's important to understand this. The other thing, we're going to go all the way back to Yeshua conquered the death before the cross, a teaching I did two years ago. And we talked about the concept of the blood money from the temple that was thrown back by Judas when he realized that he had betrayed the Christ. And then the temple leadership made sure that they were like, this ain't on us, but they couldn't put the money back into the treasury. That money that bought the blood of God was then used to buy Potiphar's field, which was in Jerusalem, just south of the temple, which is the final resting spot for the people from the nations. So there was a field bought with the blood money of Christ so that non-Jewish people in the land could be buried and have final resting places in the promised land that was given to Israel. So when it talks about provide shelter for all people and lands, for us now, that's, that's not really that foreign. Because in this room, we have people from all types of different ethnic backgrounds. We have from different, uh, from different educational backgrounds and cultural backgrounds and racial backgrounds. And, and there's a diversity of us here. In Israel and some of the older cultures, there wasn't as much diversity in those areas. They didn't have airplanes, and they didn't have cell phones, and they didn't have Facebook, and they didn't have all these things. And so they were more tribal in what they did. And so there was a lot of similarities to how they did, what they dressed like, what they looked like, all those types of stuff. Some would say it looks more like a modern-day cult. Most of them weren't. Most of them were just cultures. They were cities. But we have to just think for a second, we can't automatically apply things to a 21st century concept. We have to think back to how people lived. Rewind, bring in Michael Landon, little house on the prairie, we're churning butter. My kids don't know said things. It's, which organic butter did we get from Costco this week? No. Put yourself in the concept of that. So when it's all peoples and lands, this is revolutionary because the kings of those areas would gather up they would conquer, they would bring in, and they would make them their own, whether they're slaves, whatever it was. It wasn't about making them their own people, their own land inside of this. This is why we also see in the Jewish leadership of Jesus' time that there was the connections of political Rome into the connections of the political Judaism that was there. Because you couldn't technically be autonomous while in captivity. And yet... God will plant a twig atop a mountain which will grow and provide shelter for all people's lands. Jesus the Messiah is the prophecy here. Atop a hill will grow a root of Jesse that will transform the lives of everybody, everybody. I don't care how tall you are. I don't care where you came from. I don't care if you were a Samaritan, whether you're from Judah, from Benjamin, whether you're from the dogs. It doesn't matter. This guy's going to come. He's going to revolutionize the world, and he's going to create an invitation for all people to come and be a part of him. A new king whose kingdom will provide shelter and protection for all nations. 
Jesus provides shelter and protection for Rome. Jesus provides shelter and protection for England. Jesus provides shelter and protection for China. How? Not because they get to just be who they are. No, they have the same choice everybody else has. You either acknowledge the king, put the king where he's supposed to be, walk the way the king tells you, then they know that you're his, otherwise you're your own. If you remain your own, you are not Israel, you are not the chosen ones, you are your own God, you are your own king. But if you see the king that the Bible tells us, the messianic prophecy, the Jesus prophecy of being planted protection for all nations, you're given an invitation to the tree of life. There is no greater invitation than an invitation to Jesus. As the worship team starts to come, Ezekiel 21, there's a prophecy of a king and a priest. In the roots-based side of things, we spend a lot of time because we grew up listening to gospel messages and gospel messages and gospel messages. We don't know a whole lot. We're not taught a whole lot about the Levitical priesthood. We're not taught, taught a whole lot about the protocol of the altar system and the temple system and the tabernacle. Those things are, are glossed over and, and, and we, 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 really, we really don't need to know those. And for at least a period of time in history, there was a very anti-Semitic. Now, I'm not seeing that in this community. And so praise God for that. But I'm seeing assemblies of God pastors are like, oh, yeah, Sabbath day is 100% relevant. And like, you're like, what? And then Baptists are like, well, drinking, drinking. We don't drink, but, you know, there's a commandment to take it to the Feast of Booths. So God can't hate alcohol. And it's like, what? There's something God is doing right now that is introducing people across denominational boundaries, across lines, to his presence, his word, his calling. Why would we be surprised and why would we be angry? We read last week in the Gospel of Matthew that at the end of the world, for that to come, one, we would have to endure. We'd have to endure to the end. And that the gospel would have to be preached to all nations. Well, if the gospel is preached, then it's an invitation to understand the king and to understand the kingdom. Of course, the kingdom should come and the king would come. The king and the priest. In verse 25, God prophesies of a humble and different type of king. This is important, guys. Because we talked about earlier that roughly 70% of the kings of Israel were listed as bad kings. They were bad leadership. They were bad. So if 70%, give or take a number here, I'm not a math guru, don't call me out. But if 70% roughly are bad, then the prophecy of a new king and a priest means that it's got to be different from what is listed as evil throughout the history of time. This is a king who will revolutionize and speak with ultimate authority. I don't speak with ultimate authority. I'm not God. I interject opinions and thoughts, and sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they're right. I'm not God. I can have imperfections, and any man, woman, child can. God has a different type of authority 
because he's perfection. Jesus' prophecies are about the perfection of God and what he wants to do here. Whether it was in the time of Ezekiel and the captivity of the Babylonian Empire over Jerusalem, or whether it's today when our vice president won't go to the border or we have our own little issues. We have all these indictments and indictments on indictments and indictments on indictments. We always got issues. Guess what? There's always going to be issues. What is the solution according to the scripture? There's only one who speaks with authority, moves with authority, and that's the creator of all creation. And last time I checked, everything in this room is created. Jesus' prophecies change the world. Jesus' prophecies speak with authority that none of us have. Genesis 49.10. Man, I've spent some time on this verse. My son's middle name, Shiloh, is in part of this verse. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. This verse is used a lot to say, well, until Jesus comes, Judah is the authority. Judah is the authority. And then we argue over what does that actually mean? Well, was this the first coming of Christ? Was this the second? Was it both? I can tell you this. Without a shadow of a doubt, it's definitely the first coming. Most likely the second coming. Because God's just cool like that. God just does things over and over again because... I said last week, I didn't get to play. The comms are down. Like, I got like three of the words you asked me to do out of the five. And so God's cool about saying, I understand you're still wanting to learn. Let me keep walking with you, showing you and empowering you. The similarities between Genesis 49.10, talking about the scepter, the authority that will not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver between his feet until Jesus comes. Shiloh is a reference to the Messiah. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The similarities of wording in Ezekiel 21, 25 through 27 symbolize the coming of Jesus through the tribe of Judah. Church, I don't know where all of your background is. I know there's a lot of people who've started attending this church who've not really been in the roost base of the faith for uh, any long period of time. But I can tell you this, God loves Judah. God has always loved Judah. God will always love Judah. The church doesn't get to say Judah doesn't exist. Judah doesn't have a promise. Oh, well, we just need to go do this and we need to do... Judah is God's. Just like you are God's. He has big plans. Always has, always will be. He establishes perfection. That perfection isn't to cut somebody off and throw them away so that they can't be reconciled. Even Matthew 18 is all about casting somebody out so that they can be allowed to come back in so there's restoration. We struggle with restoration because we're not God's. God wants you to restore your marriages. God wants you to restore your relationships with your brothers and sisters. God wants you to forgive. God wants you to do different. God wants you to repent. He wants restoration. Ezekiel then tells 
Zedekiah to remove the symbols of the priesthood and the kingship until the true ruler comes. Jesus' prophecies, the Messianic prophecies in the gospel of Ezekiel are pointing once again to the inadequacies of the human heart and leadership. The first 32 chapters of Ezekiel are oracles of judgments and warnings of our idolatry and warnings of how God, through divine judgment, will deal with our heart. But then in chapter 33, there's a major shift in Jerusalem has fallen. They're all in captivity. And then in chapter 34, there's a whole shift. There's a massive shift. When we disobey God, when we disobey God and we don't walk in the ways of God, God is gracious with us, but if we can't get right, he has to bring divine judgment back. He has to bring restoration. He has to, because the covenants, the testimony are for his namesake. And there is none with a higher namesake than Adonai. There's none. Next week, We'll continue in through the prophecies of the book of Ezekiel as Ezekiel continues to share the gospel message of a new kingdom and a new king. A leadership style that changes, one that doesn't use selfishness, who doesn't use gluttony, who doesn't enslave the people and oppress the people. It's not a shepherd who shepherds for themselves. It's a shepherd who lowers Himself and humility and suffering to serve. Whether you're the leader of your household, whether you're a teacher, workplace, wherever it is, you cannot be the leadership of Messiah as a lion walking boldly, if you don't first learn how to walk in humility and servanthood as a lamb. I'm sorry, you'll never thrive in your marriage with your children in any leadership position that you have because the scripture shows us the perfect model of leadership in the Bible, and that is God in the flesh. Come to all of Israel who first came and lowered himself in humility to serve. He was God. He could have taken whatever rightful throne he wanted. The priesthood could have bowed to him. They could have taken the caste and all the best of all of Israel and all the land, and he could have decreed. But he first came to say, this is what you've seen. Over 70% of your leadership has enslaved you, has taken advantage of you, has grown gluttonous, has literally taught you and brought you to a place where you need them more than you need God. And God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to serve you so that you understand I am different. And this is how it was supposed to be. God is different. 
And all the prophecies in the book of Ezekiel point to Messiah, his kingship. As we respond today, as we sing, we have to understand that too many times we approach God the way we want to approach God with our own leadership style, with our own flaws, with our own thoughts, with our own. Sometimes, guys, I got to tell you, you got to go back and read the Word of God and make it authoritative in your life. The throne room of heaven isn't there to cast down everything before God and say, God, I'm casting this down so that you can give me this. God, I'm casting this down so you can empower me with this. No, they cast everything down and just say, you're holy, you're holy you're holy, you're worthy, you're worthy. But we can't talk about repetition because somehow there's frequencies and there's mind controls. Yet in the throne room of God, they just cast it down. They put themselves humbly before God and they say, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy are you. I got nothing. Outside of you, Lord, I am nothing. The fact that I even understand anything about the Torah, the fact that my family keeps the Sabbath, the fact that my family does the feast, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, wasn't on our radar. Holy, holy are you. You did it. I didn't do nothing. We got to shake off the workspace salvation. And we got to get in on our faces before the Lord. And we have to say, the only reason why I can do anything right is because you're holy. Forever he's holy. Not just today, not just tomorrow, not just in Ezekiel, not just in Revelation. All Messianic prophecies say that we have fallen short of the glory of God, and God has never fallen short for us, ever. And so today, as we respond, as we look inwardly, if you got nothing else to give, just holy forever, holy forever. Kadosh, kadosh, lakai, you are holy, Lord. Your Torah is holy. Your feasts are holy. Your Sabbath is holy. Your namesake is holy. Your prophecies are holy. You are holy. I got nothing else for you, Lord, except that I see that you are better than anything. Thank you. And leave it there in front of him because he's the only one worthy of that.